You may be seated. Some of you may have heard of a little seven-year-old boy by the name of Owen. Owen has a very rare muscular disorder called Schultz-Jamplin syndrome, and, or SJS as it's commonly known. For, for Owen, SJS causes his muscles to always be in a state of tension. He is always flexing his muscles and he cannot relax them. Now for you and I, depending on what we are doing, we are constantly using some of our muscles at various times. And at any time, you and I could uh, potentially flex all of our muscles and completely tense up, and we could try to hold it, but after just a couple minutes, that's going to become excruciatingly painful and hard to hold. But for Owen, that's how he lives his life. He is constantly in a state of tension, unable to ever let that go. His parents have said that this has really caused him a lot of uh, problems in being shy and being afraid to go out in public. You see, he's not able to really walk very well, and so uh, he's having to use a wheelchair. And so Owen feels like whenever he goes out in public, that a lot of people are just staring at him because he is in a wheelchair and because he doesn't look like the other kids. And so this has caused him to lose a lot of self-confidence and become very shy. All of that is until he met Hatchie. Hatchie was a rescue dog. You see, Hatchie had been in a terrible train accident and had lost one of his legs. There was a rescue foundation that had found Hatchie, and they were now looking for a home for him. Owen's mom heard about Hatchie and asked them to bring him over to their house, and so they did. And as soon as Hatchie came in the door, he immediately went over to Owen, laid down, and gently laid his head in Owen's lap. His parents knew Hatchie's staying. He's not going anywhere. His mom talked about the relationship that they have built. She said, you know, it's really become such a very special bond between Owen and Hatchie. She said, I'll look over at them sometimes, and, and I'll see them sort of just talking to each other. She said, I don't dare ask what they're talking about because I know it's something very personal, but it really is so special to see. She said, sometimes Hatchie will come in and lay down, and, and Owen will lay his head on, on Hatchie and use him as a pillow, and Hatchie will just lay there for as long as Owen wants. She said, you know, Hatchie has really provided so much self-confidence for Owen. He's really overcome his shyness. He's seen that it's okay to be different. And now Owen really enjoys going out and making public appearances and talking about SJS and talking about how it's okay to be different. Here you have these two. One, a seven-year-old boy with a rare muscular disorder. The other, a three-legged dog who's been in a terrible train accident. These two that seem to have so many special needs of their own that seem to be so ill-equipped to take care of anybody else. But yet, in a very amazing, unexpected, and special way, they've been able to care for each other's souls in ways that nobody else could. It's been an incredible bond. I'd like to continue on our sermon series this week, The Wild Kingdom, Celebrating God's Creation. You know, we've had so much fun over the last several weeks looking at different scripture stories and how God is able to use animals to teach us lessons about faith and how to live life more fully. We've had a lot of fun looking at stories like Jonah and the whale, looking at stories like the talking donkey and Noah's Ark, some of these stories that sometimes we don't always get to talk about very often. We've had so much fun looking at them and, and the lessons that we can learn in life from all of God's creation. This morning in our scripture story, we find the prophet Elijah at the very beginning of his ministry. Now, we know that Elijah would go on to do incredible things for God, 
But here we catch him at the very beginning, such a very special time. And it is here that, that Elijah is encountering King Ahab. Now it's important to know that King Ahab was the king of Israel, but he was probably one of the worst kings that Israel ever had. You see, Ahab had not only turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he had in fact begun worshiping Baal. Baal was the, the Canaanite god of rain and life. Uh, they believed that, that Baal was the one that brought rains in that land. And so King Ahab had begun worshiping Baal and had turned away from Yahweh. So Elijah comes to King Ahab and declares to him that not a drop of dew nor rain will come again to the land except by Yahweh. Only God can bring that. Baal is just a false god, an idol. Now, what Elijah is doing here is not just saying something positive about who he believes Yahweh to be, who he believes God to be, but he's actually taking a little bit of a shot at Baal, this false god, this idol. And in doing so, he's also taking a shot at King Ahab. Now, this would have been a very dangerous thing to do because saying something negative about the king's religion was considered somewhat treasonous. And so it is that Elijah is forced to flee. God calls him out into the desert to go to safety and calls him to, to take refuge in this little brook, this little stream, in this riverbed. And he says that that is where you will be safe. That is where I will provide for you and take care of you. Now, I've never been to Israel before. I would love to go someday. But from what I understand, much of that region uh, is very much a desert. Now, if I was Elijah, and I had just declared that there was going to be a drought in this land, and they weren't even going to have a drop of dew, and now God is calling me off into the middle of this desert that's in a drought to go and live on my own, trying to flee away from the king, I don't know that I'd be very excited about that. But yet, that's where God called him, and so that's where Elijah went. And it's there in this little brook, in this riverbed, in the middle of a desert that's in the middle of a drought, that God is able to care for Elijah in the most unexpected of ways. It's out of the mouth of birds that God cares for Elijah. I think there are three very important points for us to learn from our scripture lesson this morning. First, God is able to take something that is considered unclean and make it clean again. See, it's important for us to know that according to Hebrew faith, that all the animals were labeled as either clean or unclean. Now, if we look back at all of our favorite book in the Bible, the book of Leviticus, I know we all enjoy reading it so much. We read there in the 11th chapter, the 15th verse, that ravens of all kinds are considered detestable. That is, they are considered unclean. Now, for a good Jewish man like Elijah, he would have understood this. And he would know that not only do you not go close to ravens, but you certainly do not eat food that has come out of a raven's mouth. Why did God choose a raven? Why not a dove, the sign of peace? Instead, God is able to take this unclean animal and bring about redemption in order to care for Elijah. God is able to take the unclean and make it clean again. Such a very important lesson for us. This last week, I got a chance to go up and travel along the East Coast. It was really a special trip. We got to go and see some of the, the, the sites of early American Methodism. I got to see some of the historic United Methodist churches in Philadelphia and New York and Baltimore. And I even got to preach from some of the, pul the, the pulpits that our, our founding fathers preached from. 
It was really an incredible experience for me, and I'm so glad I got to do this. But one day while we were there, we visited the John Street Church in New York. This is the oldest Methodist congregation in America. And so while we were there, we took a couple hours one day to go a few blocks over to visit the 9-11 memorial. Now, I think September 11th of 2001 is one of those days that you and I will always remember where we were and what we were doing when we received the terrible news of what had happened that day. And as I was there in this place, in this memorial, remembering what had happened, all of these emotions and feelings that I had felt that day began to come back over me. I remembered what a terrible and detestable thing had happened there. But yet I couldn't help but look at what was going on around me. There at this memorial, they've got these these beautiful reflecting pools, these giant reflecting pools. And pouring into them are the largest human-made waterfalls uh, in the United States. All around the outside, they have these rails uh, that have the names of all of the victims engraved in there. And then you look up around you, and there are these beautiful green trees. They're there to to serve as a reminder of the gift of, of new life and hope. As I was there, I couldn't help but think about our own memorial here in Oklahoma City and how we have come to remember what happened in April of 1995 in our own community and the terrible and tragic events of that day. We have come to find our own hope in things like the survivor tree. We've come to find a place of contemplation and peace in the reflecting pools there. We have taken a day and a place where there was so much tragedy and devastation and detestable behavior and turned it into a place where we can find hope. As a community, we have been galvanized by what happened that day and committed to never let something like that happen again. We have taken this unclean, terrible, detestable situation and God has been able to bring about redemption and offer us a message of hope for our community today. God is able to take the unclean and make it clean again in order to care for our souls. Second, God is able to work through the most unexpected people and in the most unexpected places to care for us. See, after Elijah had been at that brook for a little while, it began to dry up. Remember, he had declared that there would be a drought, there would be no more rain or dew, and so the brook eventually would dry up, and God calls to Elijah and calls him off to a foreign land and at a town called Zarephath. And he says that when you get there, you'll find a widow who will be there to take care of you. Now, it's important to understand how Elijah might have heard this message. You see, widows in this time were really reliant upon the community around them to care for them. They had no means of income, and they had no way in which to even take care of themselves, much less to take care of somebody else. So I imagine when Elijah got this message that it's a widow who's going to take care of him, he was probably a little bit skeptical. How could this really happen? But yet he goes, because that is where God has called him. And there he finds this widow. And as we read on in the scripture, we see that she really was in a state of absolute poverty. It says that she began gathering sticks. She was going to prepare a meal out of these sticks and the little bit of food that she had left. She says that she thought that she had about enough food left to make one more meal. And then she and her son were probably preparing to die. This is the person whom God has chosen to care for his prophet, this most unexpected widow. 
we also have to take into consideration where Elijah is at this point. Now, Zarephath was in the middle of the Canaanite region. Now, I said earlier that the Canaanites were the ones who worshipped Baal. Now, in this area where Zarephath is, they are in the very middle of that region where Baal was worshipped. And so the people who lived there, likely including the widow, would have been worshipping Baal, and on top of that, would not have welcomed anybody else who worshipped Yahweh or believed that Baal was not the one who brought rain. And that is where God has called Elijah to, to care for him. This most unexpected widow, unexpected person, and the most unexpected of places, and yet that is where God's grace becomes evident. Here in America, we, we just celebrated such a special holiday with the 4th of July. You know, I always love getting to celebrate it. We get to watch baseball all day and eat hot dogs and go out at night and watch fireworks, eat homemade ice cream, be with friends and family. It's such a special holiday here. But here in the U.S., we also celebrate another very special holiday on May 5th, or Cinco de Mayo. Oftentimes, many of us think that Cinco de Mayo is the day of Mexican independence, sort of like our 4th of July. But that's not actually the case. Mexican Independence Day is really September 16th. It was in 1862 that Mexico declared to Spain, Great Britain, and France that they were no longer going to be able to pay back the debts that they owed them. Now, Napoleon III, who is Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew, was the emperor of France at the time. And he saw this as a prime opportunity to leave his mark and expand the empire of France. This gave him the perfect excuse that he needed to go and attack Mexico and begin to expand his empire into the Americas. And so it was that Napoleon sent his navy and his army to Mexico. They began to encounter a little bit of resistance from the small Mexican army, but eventually they they made it to land and began their march to Mexico City. It was on May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo of 1862, that Napoleon's army encountered President Benito Juarez the very small Mexican army at the Battle of Puebla. The Mexican army at this time was made up of about 4,500 people. It was a very small army. They had little weapons and very low to no ammunition. They had very little, if, if any, training at all. And here they're encountering this French army that's nearly twice their size, that has all of the state-of-the-art weapons and ammunition that they need, that has been trained and, and prepared for this type of situation. Nobody would have expected that the Mexican army had any chance that day. But President Benito Juarez and that little Mexican army were able to hold off the French and win that day at the Battle of Puebla. Many American historians say that that is one of uh, the most keystone historical dates in American history that we often don't know about. The reason is, they say, is that if Napoleon III had won the battle that day, They expect that he probably would have gone from there and marched right on into Mexico City, taken over Mexico City without any problems at all. And from there, they believe that he would have sided at that time with the Confederacy as we were in the middle of our own civil war. That from Mexico City, Napoleon would have been able to launch a campaign and march his army from Mexico City to Washington, D.C. While the Union troops were engaged uh, there with the Confederate troops, and they probably would have gotten to Washington, D.C., and our history might have been changed forever. But there, on May 5th of 1862, this small little army very unexpectedly beat the Goliath of the French army. It's in the most unexpected of people, like a widow in Zarephath, 
that God is able to care for his prophet. And today, God is able to care for you and I in very unexpected ways through unexpected people. And sometimes you and I are those ones who are the unexpected people that God is calling to care for somebody else. Third, God is able to bring about an abundance of care for Elijah in the middle of a desert. It is there that God has called them out in the the middle of this drought to the desert. And while he was there, God calls the ravens to bring him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. Now, for somebody who is a fugitive and fleeing the monarchy at that time and has gone out to the desert, to be fed bread and meat and water twice a day, every day, was not just trying to survive. This was truly thriving. God was caring for Elijah abundantly in this situation. God is able to care for us abundantly in the deserts and droughts of our lives as well. I recently got to meet the executive director of the Louisiana Prison Chapel Foundation and got a chance to to get to know her and hear about uh, the prison ministry that's going on in Louisiana. She was telling me about the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. Now, the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola is is one of the largest prisons in this area of the country. It covers over 18,000 acres and houses about 6,300 different inmates. Now, many of the inmates who are on uh, death row in Louisiana are kept there at Angola, and many of the others who are are at Angola are serving life sentences. They're going to be there for the rest of their lives. This, This prison has been called the Alcatraz of the South. Some of the most terrible criminals who have done some of the most terrible things are kept there. But she began telling me about Warden Burl Kane, Warden Burl Kane came there to the Louisiana State Penitentiary in the 1990s, and he began to change the culture there. It had been such a terrible place uh, where people were constantly in in violent situations and and acting out against one another. But Warden Kane came in and said, we're going to begin to treat each other a little bit different. We're going to begin to treat each other with a sense of respect. They began uh, using new rules. All of a sudden, it was... Uh, You had to call everybody by yes, ma'am, or no, sir. All of a sudden, we were going to live more interconnected. You see, before, if I acted out and misbehaved, then I would get in trouble. If you were to to do something right and to behave well, then you would get rewarded. Now, all of a sudden, Warden Kane came to say, we're going to change this. If you act out and you misbehave, we all get in trouble. But if you do well we're all going to get rewarded. All of a sudden, the the prisoners began treating each other a little bit different. See, now my fate and my happiness and my life depended on your actions, and your life and fate and happiness depended on my actions. And so all of a sudden, they began looking at each other a little bit different. They were treating each other with respect, and instead of encouraging each other to act out and be violent and misbehave, now all of a sudden, they were encouraging encouraging each other to, to live life a little bit different in hopes that they could all live a better life there in the prison. Now, when Warden Cain came to the penitentiary, they had no prisons there uh, at Angola. There really hadn't been much of a desire for them, and so they hadn't worried about trying to come up with the funds to to build a chapel there at the uh, the prison. But now, all of a sudden, the culture was different. The prisoners were looking for something a little bit more out of life. They saw that, that we can live together in a new and incredible way, And there's maybe something more to all of this. 
And so it was that they decided that it was time to build a chapel there at the prison. Now, the problem with building a prison at a chapel is that there are not too many people who are sitting around waiting to write a check to build a prison chapel. So they had to come up with the ideas of how do we raise funds to build a chapel in a prison. Now, since 1965, the inmates at the Louisiana State Penitentiary have been hosting this rodeo, and it's always been their annual fundraiser for different things that they wanted to do around the prison. Now, all of a sudden, the prisoners decided, we want to start using this opportunity to raise funds to build a chapel for us. See, they had to come up with their own funds for all of this. Since they began doing this, the the rodeo has really taken on a life of its own. They've since built a stadium that seats 10,000 people so that every year all people from around the community will come together to help raise funds for the prison. They've gone on to build their first chapel, and they saw that prisoners were coming and coming and coming, and so they saw a need to build a second chapel, and then a third chapel, and a fourth, and finally a fifth chapel. They now have five chapels that are running at this one prison that once had none, Talk about a place that is full of despair and drought and is a desert. But now God is able to breathe life and comfort and care and hope into this place. I asked Cindy, the executive director, what it was about these prisons that that the prisoners were willing to work so hard for to build these chapels. And she said, you know, it's what it is is that these prisoners are, are living in a place of such despair and hopelessness. She said, now all of a sudden when they go to the chapel, they found a place that that brings them a message of hope, a place where they're cared for, where they're not just treated like another number in the prison system, but they're truly offered a a humanity, a chance to be human again. She said it's become an incredible thing where they've felt so much value in this that they've continued to work so hard to build the funds to build more and more chapels. God is able to bring about care and comfort and hope in the middle of our droughts and deserts of life the most unexpected of places, God is still able to provide care. It was while I was in Philadelphia uh, that I got a chance to to visit some of the famous uh, U.S. historical sites while I was there. I got to see the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall, and one day we were taking a tour through some of these historic buildings. And it was while we were there that we went to uh, the place where, the, the room where the Constitution of the United States was written. Our tour guide was telling us that they try to keep everything and about the shape that it would have been uh, on the day that the Constitution was signed. Uh, They try to keep the layout of the room the same, and and they began telling us who would have been sitting where. It was so neat to be in this place. But one of the problems with trying to keep everything original is that some of the furniture doesn't last that well. So, in fact, one of the only pieces of original furniture that they have left is the chair that George Washington sat in while they were writing the Constitution. Now, on the top of this chair is a sun that's been carved into the wood, but it's only half of a sun. Now, on the final day when the Constitution was being signed, Ben Franklin began talking about this chair. He said, I've been looking at this chair for countless days, and I could not tell as I was looking at the sun whether it was rising or setting. But now I know it is a rising sun. Ben Franklin had hope for the future of this country. He knew that the sun was just beginning to rise. For you and I, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we too know that the sun is just now rising, that we have hope for the future. 
that we know that God will continue to care for us in the most unexpected of ways and in the most unexpected places. And now God is calling us to go out and care for others in outrageous and unexpected ways. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers.